2: hey welcome in everybody to another edition of all rise the podcast that features diane godfrey the intrepid court reporter who has covered so many celebrated cases in her 30-year-plus career stories about the court system crazy cases bizarre criminals attorneys da's judges and much more I'm Boston broadcaster and podcaster Jordan Rich, Diane's sidekick, and I love being with her and listening to the stories along with you. And, Diane, we have two great guests today, J.P. O'Donnell, a writer of detective novels, a children's book, and the author of Living on the Fringe of the Mob. Joe wrote the book on the behest of Steve Sachs, who tells his riveting story of growing up around the New York mob from the 1980s through the early 2000s. As you'll hear, Steve is connected to some of the highest-ranking and notorious mobsters in New York City by virtue of long-standing childhood friendships and legitimate business relationships. Steve is a successful entrepreneur in the meat products business. The book is terrific. Diane, I invite you to take it away.
1: Welcome to our special guest today, Joseph P. O'Donnell, who is a writer, and he wrote a terrific book told to him. It's the story of Stephen Sachs, and the name of the book is Living on the Fringe of the Mob. And I have to tell you, they were kind enough to send me a copy, and I read it in one day. I got it, I read <laughs> most of it, and the next day I read the last few pages. And I think I did that to another book when somebody was on Jordan with one of one of their books. But this was a terrific book, and it was a page turner.
2: Oh, I was just going to say page turner is the is the name of the game. You could have listened to the book, too, by the way.
1: Well, yeah, because the famous Jordan Rich narrated the book.
2: Consider it a high mark in my career to do a book like that. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thank
1: you, Jordan. We're happy
0: to
2: have you do it. We've got the author and the man who told him the story. So, Joe, we'll start with you to talk about how you came across Steve and why this made such a great story in your estimation.
0: Well, I was going out to play golf here at our our club in West Palm Beach, Florida, And this guy came over to talk to me. Uh, I had seen him around, but I did not know him. And uh, he said, I've been looking for you. And I looked back and I said, Why are you looking for me? And he said, Well, you're the guy that wrote a book and they made a movie out of it, right? And I said, Yeah, that's correct. And I said, But I'm going out to play golf right now. So you want to get together and talk about the movie sometime, I'd be happy to do it. He said, no, no. Uh, he said, uh, I am I want you to write my life story. And I said, I'm a fiction writer. I make stuff up. Cause I don't write memoirs or biographies. He said, no, when you, when you talk to me for a while, you're going to want to write my story. So I agreed to meet Steve about a week or so later in one of the uh, card rooms here at our club, and I said, okay, give me a, an idea of why I wouldn't want to write your story. And he said, my childhood friends uh, where I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where the Columbos, the Gambinos, and the Bananos, and uh, I knew these guys my whole life, and they went into crime. I went into my father's business, but I did favors for them the entire time. It kind of caught my uh, attention. And he and I began meeting for breakfast, and uh, again, in in some of the card rooms here when they were empty. And I interviewed Steve for a year and a half, twice a week for a year and a half, to get his story. And I was fascinated by what
3: he told me. Joe went out and bought me a tape recorder. (laughs) And truthfully, uh, I don't have an iPhone. I still have a flip phone. Hmm all right? And people laugh about it. I'm not technically bright with this stuff. So uh, Joe bought me a tape recorder, and uh, I told a couple of stories on tape, but then I told stories on top of the stories. So the tape recording got wiped out. Okay? (laughs) So we more or less accomplished things by going to the card room, the library, and... uh, talking about the different incidents that I had growing up in Brooklyn as the only Jewish kid in that neighborhood for a few miles. So uh, that's how it began. And one thing led to another. Before long, besides the tape recorder, which he finally showed me how to work, uh, I also wrote pages down of things that occurred during my childhood and then later on in life So that's how we got going on this project. Right.
1: Steve, two quick things come to my mind as you're speaking. First of all, if um, Joe could tell the listeners which movie they made one of his books out of, because I know that he mentioned that and he must be listening. We don't want to go off on a tangent, but we'd like to inform the listeners of which movie it is. And secondly, the first thing I thought of, Steve, when I saw this book was, oh, my goodness, weren't you scared? I think I know the answer to why you had free reign to write the book, but you did have free reign to write the book, right? Right. With no retribution, because that would be, in my eyes, a touchy Hmm. subject matter.
0: Right. Well, as far as your first question, uh, I I was an unknown writer. I authored uh, my first book uh, called Fatal Gamble. Uh, It was about a private detective in Boston. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it 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 went really nowhere. Uh, then I wrote a sequel because I was trying to find a, a literary agent that would pick up my work, and uh, the agent convinced me that I had to be I had to write a second book in order to be considered a legitimate writer. So I wrote the second book that was a sequel to the first, and that was called Deadly Codes. And both books were about a private detective in Boston. And uh, unbeknownst to me, my wife's cousin, who loved the books, lived in New York and gave them to a friend who lived in his condominium complex in New York City. Uh That guy uh, was a two-bit character actor in plays and some movies. Uh, and he, he read both books, loved them, and sent them to a guy in California. That guy eventually got them to Bobby Moresco, who won the Oscar for the movie Crash for Best Screenplay mm-hmm. of the Year. Mm-hmm. Bobby called me and said, I love this story, and I love this character, and I think it's, he's perfect for a film noir. And yes, they eventually made a film out of... My book, it's called Bent, B-E-N-T, and it came out in 2018.
2: And it stars Carl Urban, Sofia Begara.
0: And Andy Garcia. So yeah. it's an
2: A-list cast, no question. Yeah, and yep. they even gave me a cameo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? You told me that, and I did watch the movie, and I saw you sitting at that table with the beautiful woman in the <laughs> nightclub scene.
0: Yes, but she could not speak English. She only spoke Italian. <laughs>
2: Didn't matter to you, Joe. I know. No, I know.
0: She was, was very pretty. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, getting back to Diane's second question, that was about uh, Steve. Uh, you want to comment, Steve, yeah. on, on your story?
3: The question was whether I was afraid of writing the book itself.
1: You tick somebody correct? off. But you know what? Can I tell you, as a reader of the book, you didn't say anything derogatory? No, you just no. told how life was back then with people exactly. you knew.
3: And about the meat industry being as corrupt as it was with uh, many of the mafia guys involved. Uh, The meat industry was one of the most corrupt industries in the country. But growing up, uh, first of all, afraid, no, because as Joe wrote the manuscript, I would take it and meet with an individual who's part of the Gambino family. And uh, we'd sit down, talk about it, and we're friends. And I would say to him, do you feel that I should change names? They he said, no, absolutely not. Name them all. He says, I don't give a whatever. And I said, well, I'm going to change some of the names as we go. And as we finished the manuscript, a gentleman out of Brooklyn, and I do call him gentleman—uh moved down to Miami, and we stayed in touch. And I knew him for many years, part of the Bonanno family. And uh, I ran the manuscript down to him. He loved it. Well, a few weeks later, Joe said to me, you know, Steve, the stories are great, we did a good job, Said, but what about the veracity of some of your stories? I mean, uh, People are questioning, you know, do I know whether they're truthful or not? They said, I'll tell you what, Joe. I said, I'll make a luncheon date with the last man standing in the Bonanno family, hmm. okay, from Brooklyn. And we'll go down, and you can ask him anything you want. And that's what we did. I hmm. took Joe down to Adventura. We uh, sat for three and a half hours at a beautiful Italian luncheon. And Joe asked whatever he wanted to. And my friend turned to him and said, anything that's in this book that I know about is true. Correct. And I
0: asked him if I had anything to worry about in writing this book with those names in it. And he said, don't worry, they're all gone. When Steve Mm -hmm. and I knew them, we were both in our 30s or early 40s,
3: he said, "There's no one left that's going to bother
2: you." That's interesting. So, yeah. Yeah.
3: Truthfully, at at 82 years old, I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got
2: to tell I've got to tell the audience, uh, guys, that uh, having also interviewed these two, Diane, on my own podcast, we we got into a lot of issues, but one of them was some of the physicality that you exhibited. You were a strong, you still are, but you were a strong young guy who didn't take any guff and stood up to not just guys in the mob, but stood up to gangs,
3: the drug pushers. pushers. pushers, Yeah, that's correct. On 38th Street, where the plant was 9th Avenue on the west side of Manhattan, there was a big drug problem. And uh, one of the stories involves a priest or monsignor who kind of uh, called for a meeting of some of the business people on the west side of Manhattan in regard to kids being harassed with drug pushes along their way to parochial school. And uh, how the mothers were worried and families were worried. And this particular priest called for a meeting. He called me up. And I had no idea this was occurring. I knew about the drug pushes because I had my own situation with them, which is also described in the book. Um, And the priest called for a meeting, and when he called me up, I said, Father, I'm Jewish. Why are you bothering me? He said, well, a couple of the Italian people in the neighborhood said that you would be the type of individual that would stand up and tried to take care of things out in the street with them. And uh, we went to the meeting. It was at the at G, Giordano's Giovanni's on 40th Street and 9th Avenue, and Giordano's in a garden restaurant. And uh, we sat and talked about the problem, and we agreed that we were going to go out in the streets and clean it up. And that's where I got involved with uh, Manganaro's, which is a very famous restaurant on 9th Avenue 38. 38th. It was the home of the six-foot hero, the original <laughs> six-foot hero, Sal and Joe Manganaro. Then we had Vinny's Fruit Market and uh, Jimmy, the black gentleman from the nursery. He was like 6'2", 6'3", and built like a wall. And we went out in the streets and we cleaned it up. I just want to say (laughs) that the reason the Monsignor asked Steve
0: and these other guys to help get rid of the drug pushers is that the cops were all being paid off. That's right. Tenth precinct. Yeah. Not the midtown south. And he knew that he knew he said the mothers are coming to see me, they're crying, their children are being uh, ruined by these drugs and drug pushers. And Steve and these guys cleaned that area up and got rid of
1: them you outlined that segment of the book beautifully that was great
3: i still have the baseball bat in the back back <laughs> trunk of my car they wanted a it. <laughs>
1: oh you know the overarching theme through the book you know what that what thought was running through my head the entire time steve must have been one tough son of a gun and you know what? You did. You weren't like, you didn't have a chip on your shoulder. You didn't look for trouble. Not at all. But it was just no. the way the neighborhood was. But I'll tell you what. You had nerves of steel, I must say. <laughs> you were You were like Rocky Marciano. I mean, <laughs> and your mother would catch you up, but you were no worse for the wear. I'm telling you. It was hilarious. No. And I'm like, I have to see this guy. Is he big? Or, you Here, know. I am, Here I am, Doc. There I am. How tall are you? I'm
3: only 5'10". I shrunk. <laughs>
2: that's more than me. I so. was
1: weighing about 220 and I went on a
3: diet. I'm down to 194.
2: Still can handle yourself. One, one of the things that Diane and I were talking about, guys, is the fact that you were so much on the fringe. What was the role of, say, police or FBI in your world? I mean, were you followed? Were you tagged? Were you wiretapped because well, you had relationships?
3: Yeah, that's true. And what I would do invariably get. Some phone calls out of Brooklyn, where I would meet on occasion with a rather important person in the Bonanno family, and uh, that was Uncle John Baracci. And phone calls would come in to me, not by him, but by underlings, that uh, they were under surveillance in Brooklyn. And uh, that I should cool it and not come around for four to six weeks. And that happened occasionally throughout the years. But, but you I said... Just want to, I, want, I just want to interject here. He sure. told me that he would get a
0: phone call. And the person on the other end of the phone was a voice he had never heard before. And they would say something like, Coffee shop, 10th Avenue, 11 o'clock, and hang up. And he knew that those calls were coming from Brooklyn from the Bonanno family and Uncle John wanted him to be there, but he would they would never make the phone call themselves. They they knew that they were being wiretapped or whatever.
3: So I don't had, know yeah, I don't know whether you guys know the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn.
2: Yeah I know. Running it.
3: through Coney Island.
2: Yeah.
3: Well there's a plaza there called Loman's Plaza. Or well, there was. I haven't been back there for a while. I'm sure it's there. And I would uh, be told to meet either at the McDonald's or the Burger King in the plaza for a cup of coffee. And somebody would pick me up and then take me to a plumbing shop in Brooklyn. Now, the plumbing shop was a
1: front. That's just like a movie
3: scene. Movie? We're trying to get people to support us to make a movie. <laughs> or a Netflix series. Maybe Definitely. You
2: know some hey, Di- Diane, I want to ask you a question, and guys, listen in to my question for her, and then you can comment. So many times in court, and you, you're a court reporter extraordinaire, you see people who are brought in and charged with being accessories to crimes. Does this kind of story sound like Anything you've seen in a court where they've either brought a guy like Steve in as a witness or they've charged him a, a guy like Steve just because he's been in the same spot and maybe the wrong place at the wrong time?
1: You know, Jordan, on a small scale, but nothing like on this level, this would be a federal court situation, I think. You wouldn't see this type of a thing in my little piddle in court. I'm in superior court. And ha- I'm, I'm, I'm robberies, rapes, right. and murders.
2: So, Steve, at any time you've been threatened by a DA or anyone with being no, charged because of your connections? Never. No, never. Interesting. No. As
3: a matter of fact, in the book, I made it very clear that I had no part, was sat down with, or had conversations with in anything that was nefarious or, or violent or anything like that.
1: Spoke earlier, you referred to Bonanno, the last man standing. Can you give us a status of there is no more, quote on, like what happened to the three families you speak of?
3: Growing up, the basis for most of the families was respect and loyalty. And uh, don't forget, most of these people who came over were immigrants originally and uh, had a hard time making a living growing up in Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, New York. And uh, they, they had, in some way, how to make a living. And the way they did it was the only way they knew. But amongst them, for the most part, for the most part, the two things that were the most important things with them was respect and loyalty. And that's what I learned as a young man and continued afterwards in all my dealings with them. They never exposed me to any of the nonsense or violence or any of that 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 occurred. Even in some of the favors that I did after I did it, and it wasn't uh, criminal, any of the activities, and uh, when I came back and reported on a couple of things, of course, I traveled all over America. Top's Meat became the number one frozen retail hamburger in the country, and uh, we had my biggest account was Walmart. We did business with Safeways, Albertsons, California, Chicago, Jewel Osco, A&P, Pathmark, ShopRite, Acme publics, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Mm. So uh, in my travels, if they had a business or an investment that they weren't exactly sure about or wanted to check up on, that's when I got a phone call. And uh, the New Orleans story was a perfect example.
2: The fact that in those days, during their prime, they really did operate centered in New York, but have tentacles all over the country. So that, oh, that's a perfect segue to the New Orleans story. Tell us a little bit about what happened down there for you.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going down there to meet with a couple of supermarket heads, and I got a phone call about oh, four days before to meet at Lomans McDonald's in Brooklyn or in, off of Coney Island, off the Belt Parkway, And uh, they picked me up brought me back to the plumbing shop, and I sat down with the gentleman, Uncle John, and he asked me to do him a favor and check on an investment that was involved with crawfish uh, netting, bringing in crawfish off a barge. And uh, I went down to New Orleans, and I got picked up at the airport by the sheriff's department. They came and offered up transportation back to the (laughs) the sheriff at the time was a gentleman by the name of John Fody, who had been sheriff for many years in the New Orleans Parish. And uh, I met with him, and there was a Bonanno down there, Les Bonanno, who had left Brooklyn or was told to leave Brooklyn and situated himself down in New Orleans with the sheriff. And it was an interesting situation. Les continued to uh, be in the gaming or vending business. He created it down there. And I met with Les and the sheriff. Then they tried to book me into, I think it was the Sinesta, Bourbon Street. I'm not quite sure. I think in the book that's what I said. Uh, Some of the things, you know, I left to memory, uh, which had left me. (laughs) So as I got older. Um, but when I went down there, I got picked up at night. Well, first of all, they checked me into the hotel and got me a suite and uh, I didn't pay. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was picked up and I went to a restaurant and had dinner with this gentleman. And he was the individual who uh, was involved in the crawfish operation. And um, he took me to the river after dinner. It was twilight. I could still see. And uh, he showed me the barge that the 250000 was invested by Brooklyn into that. And uh, the barge had barnacles, and it looked like it was dilapidated and lay in the water for five years. Yes. So now, I had to go back to Brooklyn with that info. I took a couple of pictures and uh, tell the head guy over at Bonanno uh, what I saw, and I had to show him the pictures. Right. So naturally they weren't too happy because they had quarter million dollars back in that period of time was quite a bit of money, and they knew they had gotten scammed. Yeah.
2: So in a, in a sense, Steve, you were uh, a representative just, just checking right. the story out, just checking yeah. the scene. Right. Yeah.
3: So I came back, I uh, kind of reported over a, a lunch meal in Brooklyn, and uh, walked away. And what they did uh, was eventually own part of a restaurant that this quarter a million dollars was invested in near a university down in New Orleans. And uh, that's how they got their money back. I don't know what they did down there or what they were trying to going to do, and I wasn't interested. Naturally, the story got out that they went down, and uh, I guess they threatened the guy. And eventually, they uh, became a partner in that restaurant and uh, got their money back. Hmm. One
0: thing that, that Steve told me about that story was, that he had gotten uh, a phone call. Can you still hear me?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. He had gotten a phone call uh, saying, uh, Steve, we understand you're going to New Orleans. And he said, how do you know that I'm going to New Orleans on business? I didn't tell anybody. And they said, Steve, we know everything.
3: (laughs) Which turned out to be true. They were they were involved in every industry throughout New York, Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, Buffalo, Rochester, Chicago, New Orleans, Kansas City.
2: Yeah. What was it? Uh, Giuliani's regime that took them down. That started to dismantle them.
3: Yes. He was, in my my opinion, with what I know and what I saw. He was the best mayor of any city in the entire country. There was nobody like Rudy Giuliano.
1: Well, he cleaned up New York and he made it safe. Could he made around it and safe
3: and he, cleaned up, and he cleaned up the corruption too. Yeah. A lot of it. A lot of
1: it. Now it's going down the tubes again, but oh, yeah. big a time. time now.
2: So, Steve, what, what's your take on quote unquote organized crime today? Now, organized crime can be cartels, uh it can be Russian, it can be some pretty nasty characters. Not that the the mafiosos weren't tough when they had to be, but do do they even compare to the uh to the old days, to the Uh
3: they're they're more violent, the cartels and the uh and the Russians. Uh in Brooklyn the Russians came into Brighton Beach and uh, took over a lot of the situations there. But uh yeah, had the Haitians come in, the Jamaicans. I mean, it was one after another, one group after another. And eventually, the younger Italians and Irish kind of stepped aside, uh, whether they had the strength of character, if you want to call it character, or the strength of mind to, uh, to fend it off, but it definitely was uh, going downhill with the youth that came up with the people that I knew.
2: It's also true that many of those younger people in that generation were college educated and the previous generation paid, uh, you know, and worked hard, call it what you will, to put them through school. And drugs
3: became a big thing
2: too, Yeah, right, Drugs
3: sent it into the picture. A lot of the young ones uh, started a deal in drugs and it was a no-no with a lot of the bigger guys. And uh, they they fell in and became addicted themselves. And uh, that's what the downfall was. The, the respect and loyalty had gone out the window.
1: Okay, Can back. I ask you, I've heard that before with the mafia, like what, why did they frown upon drug dealing? I'm just curious what their mindset was. Some of was.
3: them did, some got involved.
1: But the ones that okay. were against it, why were they against it, do you know?
3: while well, they had other investments and they thought drugs eventually would kill off a lot of the things that they were doing.
2: The famous Don Corleone godfather scene, drugs are dirty business, remember yes. that? Yeah, exactly. dirty business, exactly.
3: Dirty. exactly. Yeah. That's why I went out in the streets, too. And we formed that vigilante committee on the west side of Manhattan.
2: Yeah, there's a scene in the book, Diane, you, you read it, of course, and where Steve is out there against these thugs and just taking him on, which is why it's going to be a movie or a TV series, just for that scene alone. Can you also tell the story about throwing the guy out the window or almost throwing the guy out the window? Yeah, well, I wasn't going to throw him out the window. Well, it's a my great story. Never, my dad and I had a
3: love-hate relationship, and I bought him out. And as we were in the process with lawyers of buying him out, he had come back and forth from Pilar. I was running the business and growing it, and uh, he was into restaurants, coffee shops, Steiners, cash, cash business. He liked. I was into expanding into supermarkets, large chains, a Walmart, and stuff, and U.S. Foods and A.R.A. and all, all the bigger uh, companies. Anyway, I wanted to buy him out. And uh, he had come back from Florida during the summer, and I took a week or two off. And while I was away, he had an old habit of buying a certain product called pork spleens and trying to put it in the mix because it was bloody red. But it was illegal according to the product that we had manufactured. It was a filler, an you illegal could not, filler. Yeah, you could not put it in. It was not an, ingre- an ingredient of an all-beef hamburger. So when I got back and I started checking inventories on the third, fourth, and fifth floor of our building, uh, I came across 800 boxes, 30-pound weight. It was almost two tons, exactly. Excuse me. Uh, not two tons. Two uh, tons. 12 tons, 12 tons and uh, I came across it in the freezer inventory and I went downstairs and I approached my father and I said, why is that product in our plant, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was trying to make some extra money and we got into a heated argument and I went upstairs and I got the controller to give me the invoice on it. Thank God there was an invoice that wasn't paid. And I took the invoice and I said, give me the phone number of the agent who sold it to us, called him up, told him that this invoice was not getting paid and to pick up his porks plates. He threatened me over the phone, said I'd get a visit from somebody to make sure that I paid the invoice. day later, a gentleman, a piece of garbage, a thug, came in about six 6'4", weighing close to 300, and uh, came upstairs and said to me, are you the guy who's supposed to pay this invoice? And at that point in time, right before, I had told my secretary to open up. We had these large windows up on the second floor. Uh, it was an ex-printing pr- plant. I don't know. They had large windows. And uh, I opened the window up there. <laughs> She got scared, and she ran out. I'll never forget the look on Teresa's face. And she said, oh, my God. Anyway, the guy came up. He said, are you going to pay this invoice? I said, no, that invoice isn't going to get paid. As a matter of fact, you're going to send a truck to pick up the pork spleens. Otherwise, I'm going to put them out on the street to defrost." So he made a bull rush towards me. And I was kind of quick and strong at that point in time. And uh, I grabbed him by the ass, excuse me, and by the neck or shoulder and just pushed him towards the open window. I slammed the window down on him, and uh, he was thrashing and all. And I said to him, you're going to send that truck? And I pulled him back out, threw him on the floor, he rolled around, And uh, he was an enforcer and a thug for the Jewish mafia. His name was Lou Wasserman, and people in New York knew of him in many industries. He was also a collector. He would go after bad debts. So uh, it wound up that they sent the truck the next
0: day. I told Steve that Lou Wasserman didn't enjoy looking straight down from that window to the parking lot, two stories below.
2: <laughs> We're dealing, Diane, with one tough Jew and one freaked out Jew in this story. <laughs> I can say that because I am one skinny little Jew. <laughs> yeah.
3: Growing up in Brooklyn is the only Jewish kid in the radius. Of, yeah. Um, five to ten miles, going to Hebrew school with my books under my belt and ten kids chasing me. Eventually I had yeah. three fights a day.
2: <laughs> and, you, and you managed to defend yourself. Joe, you've been a fiction writer and I've been blessed to know you and have the honor of reading some of your books, narrating them. They're terrific. It's amazing when you start hearing Steve's stories how much they remind us of your detective stories, some of the characters that come across. you. Walked into a gold mine here of information,
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, Steve had some great stories, and I'm honored to have had the opportunity to put them on on paper. So uh, uh, people that buy the book and read it, I think they'll enjoy it. Well and actually yeah. we're trying to get to the next step,. Yeah.
2: We've got to get that movie. And by the way, do you have anybody in mind to play you, Steve? I have an actor in mind right now. This guy would be perfect. Lee Schreiber from Ray Donovan. Right. Right?
1: right. Oh, I love Ray Ray Donovan. Donovan.
3: Yep. Well, Liam Neeson.
2: Liam Neeson?
3: Yeah, I like him, too.
2: I've got a particular pit of skills. Anyway.
3: (laughs) We need help, Jordan. Jordan, we need help to get this to the next.
2: We got to get Joe's cousin on the on the train for this thing to happen, I think. Go ahead, Diane.
1: Well, we need people to know where they can get the book. Again, the name of the book is Living on the Fringe of the Mob by Joseph P O'Donnell as told by E Stephen, Steven S-T-E-V-E-N, Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. Where can we get this book? I know it's on Amazon cuz that's where I saw yep.
0: it. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh other national uh, books Uh, Mm. services that are uh, online
2: phone is open if there's a Hollywood producer out there who wants the best story to come along in 10 years this is the this is the one guys (laughs) don't make it 10 years I may not
3: be around
2: ready for the taking right now absolutely
1: hopefully somebody's listening where are we now Jordan and like I thought last I checked I'm in almost 40 countries
2: Uh, you're in 50 by now so uh, it could be an international an international uh, production company absolutely Somebody's
1: listening somewhere. That would be great. I I just want to thank you so much on behalf of myself and Jordan, their willingness to come on and speak about this great book.
0: Well, thank you for for having us. We we had a great time as always, and uh, it was a real
3: pleasure. Thank you.
2: Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.
0: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working...